Alrighty, well, church, I'm uh, honored to be here with you today. For those of who I haven't met as yet, my name is Mihir Sarkar. I'm the director of Mixed Group and Integration uh, here at Hope Markham. Uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Philippians chapter 2, 12 to 18. And so I would like if you could just turn, with, turn there with me now. And once you're there, would you stand with me? We're going to read God's word together. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get started, Okay. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18 says the following. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Father in heaven, Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the inspired words of Apostle Paul that, we're going to be, that we read this morning. Father, as we read your word today, help us. Help us to understand the original meaning. Help us to understand how it applies to our hearts. And for, for, Father, for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, for those who have received salvation in Him alone, we have been given a great gift. And so would you help us today, Lord, to understand the immensity of that gift and how we ought to live in response to that. And for those who are here today who perhaps have not yet received the immense, immeasurable gift of salvation in Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And that your spirit would turn people from their sin to trust in Christ today. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that it would not be me or any other person or, or preacher, teacher, guest speaker that we would hear from today. But ultimately, it would be you that speaks to our hearts by your spirit this morning. We have no power in ourselves, for it is you who works in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Help us to see that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, let me take your seats. Well, church, as I was uh, doing some research this week and preparing for my message today, I came across a fascinating story. Uh, years ago, in 1879, there was a company that was established called the F.W. Woolworth Company. It was actually one of the first five and dime stores where everything in the, com everything in the store cost 10 cents. That's very similar to the concept of a dollar store today. This company, F.W. Woolworth, ended up being an international success, and the owner of the company, Frank Woolworth, uh, became a very, very wealthy man. He actually amassed a large fortune. Now, when he passed away, he left a portion of this inheritance to his granddaughter, Barbara Woolworth Hutton. Barbara, at the time, in 1933, inherited a total of $50 million, which, counting for inflation today, would be worth $983 million. Now, history tells us that Barbara, upon receiving her inheritance at the age of 21, started to spend millions on jewelry, one-of-a-kind artworks, 
museum displays, her friends, and even her various spouses over the years uh, simply just sadly used her for the fortune that she had. Now, eventually, at the age of 66, Barbara ended up passing away, and she had a grand total of 16 people who attended her funeral and only had $3,000 left to her name. Now, you may be surprised to learn that uh, there's actually a remnant of this Woolworth company today. Uh, it's changed massively, and it's now become an athletic store known as the Foot Locker. But it's no longer, it no longer has any connection to Barbara Hutton or the Woolworth family. But you see, Barbara's story, while it's tragic, it's really not that uncommon. Uh, a famous consulting group asked uh, a number of wealthy parents about how they felt about their inheritance going to their children. And they found that 78% of wealthy parents don't believe the next generation is responsible enough to handle an inheritance. When they were asked why, listen to this, they found the most common reason is because parents feel that their children do not understand the value of money. They don't understand the value of the gift that they are going to be given, and thereby they don't understand how to handle it. And in fact, 70% of inheritance are actually lost by the second generation. And so how, how does all this, how does this relate to our passage today? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to let you know that you indeed have been given a great gift a great inheritance that's worth far more than $50 million. I'd even say far more than $983 million. Do you believe that today, church? You see, earthly wealth, moth and rust destroy, as the Lord tells us, but we've been given a gift that never fades. It's a gift that lasts forever, and it's an inheritance that no one can take away. And that, my friends, is the gift of salvation. That is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and what he did for you upon that cross. But much like the recipient of earthly inheritances, all of us, we have a choice. You see, we can choose to live in light of that gift. We can choose to steward this gift wisely, investing it into the next generation. Or we can squander the gift. We can abuse it. And eventually we can be left shrinking back in shame when we give an account for how we handled this gift in our lives. And so this is really the big idea today, church. We're going to see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, that there are three ways the church, that is all of us, can live out our identity in salvation. Three ways that we are called to respond to this great gift of salvation. Now, I'm actually just going to tell them to you up front. You'll see them on your sermon notes as well. We're called to live out our salvation with a holy reverence. That's in verses 12 to 13. A holy witness. That's in verses 14 to 15. And a holy gladness. That's in verses 16 to 18. And so if you would look with me now, look back at verses 12 to 13 today. Let's read that one more time. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, the very first word in our passage today, church, is therefore. And as one Bible teacher said once, he said, if you see the word therefore, then it is therefore a reason. It means that everything that we hear today is actually coming out of the context of what we heard two weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And so I'm going to warn you in advance here that our first point is our longest point today. Our last two points are going to be a bit shorter, but really it's because our first point relies heavily upon the context of the message that we heard two weeks ago, Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. 
So just look up at your Bibles a bit, move up to the beginning of chapter two. You're gonna see that great Christological hymn that highlights the virtue of humility as Pastor Paul little reminded us. Verse six, Christ, who though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse seven, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men in human flesh, humbling himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death upon a cross. Now friends, can you imagine this? I won't go over everything Pastor Paul said two weeks ago, but I would encourage you, go back, hear the message. We cannot truly grasp the fact that the God of the entire universe, the creator of all things, saw it fit to come down in the form of a servant in your place, in my place. And so our entire passage today is based upon this. It is based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know oftentimes uh, when you go to hear a message, sometimes you'll hear the call to the gospel at the end of a message. But I think today, given our passage, it actually necessitates that we hear right up front what this gift of salvation is, what it really means to be saved. Scripture tells us, Genesis 1.1, God exists. In the beginning, God created So God exists, he is holy, he is perfect, he is good in every way, and he created all things, including you. Now out of his love, God created man, Adam and Eve, the first humans to have ever lived, and he gave them clear instructions for their good. Instead, they chose to disobey God, and that's when sin entered into the world. You see, due to their sin, we're now all born with a sin nature. All of us are separated from God because of our sin. We are enemies of God under the wrath of God is what scripture tells us because we align ourselves with this world. We make ourselves our own gods thinking that we know best. And this is a great problem because it means that when you die, our eternal souls, your your eternal soul will be separated from a holy and perfect God forever. But here's the miracle. Here's the good news of Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11, our context. This is the big story of all of scripture. God, out of his great love for us, while we were yet sinners, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to humble himself to the point of death on a cross in your place, paying the penalty of your sin. And three days later, he was resurrected by the power of God to heavenly glory, and he will one day return, or we'll meet him when our life ends. Now, we have a choice to make. We can be born again to this new and eternal life. We can accept this sacrifice, this free gift, by trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. And indeed, it is a free gift. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we simply need to make the choice to believe in the work that he did on your behalf. This is the free gift of God that you can receive by faith alone. You can turn from your sin. You can trust in him. This is the gift of salvation. Now that's the therefore in verse 12. This is the great gift that we have received. So now that we understand that, now that we understand the gift that salvation is, Let's go back and we're gonna see how God's word instructs us now to live out our salvation with holy reverence. Live out our salvation with holy reverence. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul here calls the Philippians, he calls them my beloved. 
And so he's speaking to his beloved. And that word in scripture, when you see that, oftentimes what it means is that he is speaking to fellow believers. He's speaking to the church in Philippi. These are people who are saved, who have accepted that gift of salvation. They are fellow brothers and sisters. And we can understand that the Apostle Paul was once in their presence, but now he's imprisoned and he's, been, he's away from them, not in their presence anymore. But he says to them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, on the first read of this, we can somehow think that the Apostle Paul is telling the Philippians, hey, uh, figure out your salvation. Figure out if you're saved, guys, and uh, you know, figure out what's going on. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with evaluating ourselves, but this is not the main meaning behind what the Apostle Paul is saying here. You see, he's already referred to the Philippians as beloved, as fellow believers. So it's not a matter of figuring out whether or not they're saved. When the Apostle Paul says, work out your own salvation, it simply means this. You're saved. Now work outwards that salvation. Work it out. Work it outwards. Some of the other translations, there's one translation in particular that says this. It says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Or another one puts it like this. Carry out your salvation. And oftentimes I think this verse is actually used out of context to scare people, but the Apostle Paul is not telling us to live in this state of constant anxiety or nervousness. And I think that would actually go against many of Paul's other letters where he assures us that we can live with peace of mind and we can live with confidence in our salvation because God is the author of our salvation. He's based on what he has done, not our own efforts. The Greek verb that you see used behind this term workout, it's actually the word katergazomai. And I know John, our production manager, who's from Greece, is probably cringing as I say that and I try to pronounce that word. But uh, it's, it's a word that would be used in the context of being given a great gift, a great resource. But it has an implication that you now need to work it out. You need to work to display that gift that's given to you. An example of this, let's say someone started mining the ground and they worked hard, they dug deep, they did all the hard work, and they found a raw diamond of immense value. And then they came to you and they gave you that diamond as a gift by no effort of your own. You see, you would have been given the great gift, but now you can still work at the diamond. You can work, put in work to make it shine. You can work to display that diamond, that great gift given to you. You're not the producer of the treasure, no, but you do need to put an effort to work it outwards and to display that gift. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul is telling the Philippians to live out the great gift of salvation given to them. Again, let's be clear, you did not earn salvation. None of us could do anything to be saved and reconciled to God. The scriptures tell us that man is in his natural state dead in our sins, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. But we were given this great gift of salvation, and now the Christian life is, is not meant to be passive. We're called to live it, to live it outwards. Now he goes on to say, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the question is, why fear and trembling? Again, this is not a fear of losing our salvation. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, 8. He says this to the church in Corinth. He, that is God, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or even at the very beginning of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says this. I am sure of this, that he, which is God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so this is not a fear of losing your salvation. 
Uh, one of my favorite websites, it's called gotquestions.org. It's a great resource, and, and I think it defines very well what the biblical fear of God is. And they say this, the fear and trembling before God is in part a healthy fear of offending God through disobedience, but out of an awe and respect for his majesty and his holiness. And so again, I just want to make real clear here, what is the fear of God? The fear of God is a holy reverence. It is a holy reverence for God. And so Paul is saying, live out your salvation with holy reverence. Understand the majesty of God. And why do we revere God? Because he is holy. Why do we fear? Why do we tremble before God? Because he is holy. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 3, when Isaiah has a vision of God upon the throne, there's angels flying around his throne, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, church, I want you to imagine uh, an example here with me. Imagine with me that you were friends with an earthly king here on earth. Suppose you were personal friends of the uh, newly appointed, let's say, King Charles in uh, Buckingham Palace. And let's say he invited you over for a meal. Now, when you go to that meal church, would you show up casually to that meal? Would you show up in sneakers, kind of, you know, slouched over with a casual attitude? Hey, King Charles. No, no, not at all. You see, you'd enter the palace with a deep respect for the king. You'd likely even be nervous as you walked in the front door, as you went past the royal guards. Now, this is just an earthly king, but... If he summoned you to his court, you'd understand his authority. You'd understand the immense seriousness of the occasion. And in the same way, we don't just serve the king of England or a president or a prime minister of this country. We serve someone much greater than them. We serve the God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the author of life itself, as Acts chapter 2 puts it. You see, we need to understand here that when we live out our salvation with a holy reverence, we do it because of the holy God we serve. And lastly, I want you to notice in verse 13, look back at verse 13. Paul says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The will here means that God works in our desire for him. And to work means that God works in our actions as we serve him. And so we have here what could seem at first glance like an apparent contradiction. Paul says, work out your own salvation. But then Paul says, it is God who works in you. So, so wait a moment here. Who's doing the work? Am I called to work or is it God's work? Does man put in the work or it is God? Am I called to live out my Christian life or is it God that's gonna live through me? Well, again church, salvation is the free gift of God. However, Paul is making it clear that there's a responsibility on both sides that must be worked out when it comes to how we pursue Christ-likeness. Or another fancy term that we use in the church often is to say the same thing as our sanctification. It simply means how we, it's work to put in how we strive to be more and more like Jesus Christ each day. And so church, I want to ask you this question. Who wrote the book of Philippians? Who wrote the book of Philippians? Was it the Apostle Paul or was it God? Who wrote the Gospels? Who wrote the Psalms? Was it man or was it God? You see, clearly it was both. Paul wrote the book of Philippians, but it was inspired and God, it was God that fully worked through him. 
And so our hard work doesn't negate God's work. Rather, it only confirms that it is God who is working in us and through us. All that we do is Christ working in us. This is the great mystery, that God would choose to work in us because he abides in us. Now, why does God do all of this? For the sake of time, we're going to have to keep going. Look at the end of verse 13. He does it for his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15.10, the Apostle Paul says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, it was the grace of God that is with me. And so church, man works, yes, we're called to live out our salvation, yes, but it is God that works in us. That is a terrific encouragement because it reminds us it's not based on our own efforts. No, it is God that is at work in us for his good pleasure. And I believe Paul here is encouraging us. He's encouraging the Philippians with this truth. God will be faithful to himself. And so as we live out our salvation, it confirms that God is indeed at work for his good pleasure in us. This is why we ought to live out this great gift of salvation with a holy reverence. Now I want to move on. Let's look at our second set of verses, uh, verses 14 to 15. And we're going to see here that scripture calls out to live out our salvation with a holy witness. A holy witness. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, the Philippians, uh, friends, they were living in a twisted world around them. At the time of this letter, Emperor Nero would have been reigning over the empire. And Nero, if you just do a Google search or, or, or even look up some history, Nero is known as one of the harshest, most ruthless persecutors of Christians to have ever lived. But if you go through verses 14 to 15, you see that Paul here starts to speak about these Philippians in terms of their identity. He starts reminding them who they are as citizens of heaven. He says to them, don't be grumblers or complainers. Be blameless. Be innocent. You are children of God. You are lights in the world. And he keeps reminding them of these identity terms to live out this identity in salvation despite the difficult world around them. You see, church, when we, when we grumble or when we complain, what we're really saying is, is that, God, you're not in control. I know better. When we grumble, it's... It's really out of some dissatisfaction in our current circumstances. And I, look, I, I'm, there are lots of difficult situations that we go through in this life. I'm not negating that. But ultimately, we need to understand that God is in control. God is in control. And so let me ask you, friends, do you believe that God is in control? Do you think that the circumstance that you're in today is the result of some random chance? Or do we have faith in God's word, which tells us that there is a sovereign God who has indeed allowed and ordered all things to be the way they are for a particular purpose in your life? I want you to listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 29, and what the Lord Jesus tells us. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. You see, even the tiniest bird does not fall on the ground without God knowing. And then in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things, and that means all things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do we, do we believe that, church? You see, for the believer, we need to remember that when we grumble, when we complain, 
We actually put ourselves on the throne. Far be it from us to do that. We need to remember that God is in control, not us, and he orders all things for his glory and for our good. I love the way that uh, the famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way. He said this, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the softest pillow upon which you may lay your head. Again, I'm gonna say that again. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the softest pillow upon which you may lay your head. And I really believe that's true. You see, when we don't grumble, when we don't dispute, it reflects that our hearts trust in the fact that God is in control. Again, who is our greatest example in all of this? Jesus Christ. Go back again, Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. I'm gonna say this again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death upon a cross. He didn't complain. He didn't grumble. He didn't dispute. He submitted to God the Father. He knew that God was in control. And so when it comes to grumbling and complaining, that simply should not be a mark of God's people because we have this holy witness to represent God to the world. But let's keep going. Verse 15, Paul says this, without grumbling and complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, Paul brings us back to this identity, how we ought to live as children of God, adopted into the family of God, and that's ultimately why we are spotless, that's why we're blameless, that's why we're without blemish, because Christ's righteousness is put on us when we put our faith in him. In the letter to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, chapter one, verses four to five, listen to what Paul says there. He says, even as he, that is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so church, as children of God, we now represent our Father in heaven. This is why we have this holy witness. Uh, I want to share with you perhaps a slightly embarrassing story. Uh, many years ago, when I was around eight or nine years old, uh, my family and I, we used to visit Pickering Town Center, and I used to love going there. And uh, I remember one day in particular, I was running around the second floor of the mall, and in my uh, eight or nine-year-old wisdom, I decided that I wanted to get a, a better look of the first floor of the mall from the second floor where we were. Now, my parents at the time, they weren't too far behind me, uh, but in those days, instead of the glass barrier that you see today in the mall, uh, they used to have railings and metal bars uh, on the indoor balcony near the escalators. And as you might guess, I decided somehow to uh, stick my head through the metal bars to look down at the first floor. <laughs> Except here's the problem. I couldn't put my head back out. <laughs> I was stuck in the metal bars. Yes, I was stuck. I was that kid, that foolish kid at the mall who got his head stuck between the metal bars. And I could just hear, I could hear my dad's voice in my head behind me. Seriously, me here. Come on, buddy. Come on. Right? I'm actually pretty sure they got rid of those metal bars because too many kids got their heads stuck in them. But anyways, um, my dad, very patient, very kind. He helped, he helped, he came over to me. He helped me somehow to get my head unstuck. Uh, but as people walked by, as they looked at us, as other kids laughed at us, um, I couldn't help but think about how shameful it must have been for my dad to see me do such a foolish thing. You see, this might be a silly, funny example here, but for all of us, 
to some degree, we represent our parents in the way that we live. And the same way here, when Paul goes back to telling us that we are children of God, we can be reminded that we represent God. We reflect God, our Father, to the world around us. That is why we have a holy witness. And so if we truly love our Father, then we want to represent his name correctly. our, Our desire should be to show the world who he is. The Apostle Paul goes on to say this, and for the sake of time, we're just going to have to keep going and get through the verses here, but the Apostle Paul goes on to say, without blemish in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so Paul is stating that the Philippians are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And unfortunately, I think that we can agree that the world around us today is very much the same. But he's reminding them, be set apart. You are a child of God through Christ. Your citizenship is now part of the kingdom of heaven. You are set apart from this world. And as I I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the picture of oil and water. When you put oil and water in the same cup, they simply don't mix. You see, we may all be in the same cup of this world for now, but you are totally set apart, Christian. You are set apart like oil and water. Paul even goes on further to say, as you shine as lights in the world, and simply, I don't think the ESV translation actually does justice fully to this statement. If you read a number of other translations, uh, here's how some of them put it. One other translation in particular says, among a twisted and crooked generation, among whom you shine as stars in the sky. The moon, the sun, the stars in the sky. And if you've ever gone camping, you know how this is. If you go up north a few hours, if you stay up later, if you, anywhere out of the city really, and you look, back up, you look up at the sky, it's completely filled with light because of the stars. But at the same time, the blackness of night is dark, it is unimaginable. And so the contrast is, is unbelievable there as you see the lights amongst the darkness. This is how Paul is telling us that we ought to contrast with the world around us. This is our holy witness. This is Jesus Christ in us as we represent God the Father. And now I want to go to our final point for today. We've seen that we need to live out our salvation with a holy reverence. We need to live out our salvation with a holy witness. And now in verses 16 to 18, we're going to see how we're called to live out our salvation with a holy gladness. So as Paul says, shine as lights in the world. Now verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Church, what is the day of Christ? You see, the the striving, the labor, the hard work, all of this is going to one day come to an end. The trials of this life do not last forever. And I want to be clear, this life is an endurance race. Throughout scripture, we see this analogy of a race. I'm actually going to read the exact same verses we saw in the child dedication this morning for for little Reuben. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, says the Apostle Paul, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And so friends, there's a day coming when this race is going to come to an end. 
There are different views on the timing of when the day of Christ will be, but ultimately Paul is referring here to the moment when all believers will be face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That day is coming. There's going to be a day when we meet the Lord, when all of our labors will come to an end, when we will meet the judge and king of the universe. There's a finality to all of the labor that the Apostle Paul is putting in and the labor that perhaps you are putting in today. Now, one more illustration for you here. Perhaps you've gone, for some of us, perhaps you've gone to the gym before, or you've had a personal trainer or a close friend, and when you're lifting weights, generally the first few repetitions are kind of easy, but when you get to the last set, for those of us that, that relate to this, when you get to the last set, what does the good friend or good trainer usually do? They say, hey, keep going. You only got one more left, or you only got two more left. Or in a race, when we see athletes, when they're running a long race or a long marathon, at the finish line, you'll often see their family and friends. And what are they saying? Hey, it's almost over. Keep going. You're almost there. You're almost at the finish line. Now, why do they do all this? Why do they say that? It doesn't change the fact that the person still has to run the race or lift the weights. But the reason they do this is because when you have an end in sight, it motivates you to keep going. When you can see the finish line, you can continue to work with endurance until the end. And most of all, when we see the end, we can have hope. We can have hope. In the same way, I believe the Apostle Paul has this exact mindset as he goes through these immense trials and as he, everything that he's been through. And as he writes this letter to the Philippians, he writes with the day of Christ in mind. He sees an end to the race and that gives him hope. And in the same way, let me ask you a question, friends. Do you live your life with the end in mind? You see, for us as believers, we have nothing to fear because we will be with Christ. In fact, again, Pastor Paul Little took us through Philippians chapter one. I remember hearing one of my favorite parts, hearing the Apostle Paul say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so this whole concept of the end should actually encourage us. It's not a source of fear. Living with the end in mind should be a source of gladness, a source of joy for us. And going back to verse 16, Paul says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. You see, the Apostle Paul here, he is expressing his love for the Philippians, and this is true pastoral love. It's Paul conveying his heart. He desires that all of the effort, the care that he's poured out into these Philippian believers, that is for the benefit of their faith. He wants to have a holy gladness, a holy joy in their faith on that final day of Christ. And he gladly sacrifices everything he has for the benefit and the hope that he will be made proud on that day, that day of Christ when all things are revealed. Now church, the interesting thing about our labor is this, is that when this life comes to an end, believe it or not, there's actually only one thing that we will take with us to heaven. It's not our possessions, it's not our wealth, it's not our status, it's not how people think of us, it's uh, no material possessions of any sort when we die. In fact, I remember as a kid, I used to watch the History Channel and uh, they'd have these documentaries about these Egyptian pharaohs and kings of the past and uh, when these explorers would open their tombs, they would open them up and they'd find uh, the king's most prized possessions with them, uh, including sometimes their pet cat or whatever else because they thought that they would take these things to the next life with them. But that is not what the Bible says. There's only one thing that scripture tells us that we'll take to heaven with us. And do you know what that is? 
the only one thing that we will have in heaven with us is other people. Other people. See, nothing else comes with us, only the souls of other people who have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And this is why we can pour out into others. This is why the Apostle Paul can pour out. And I believe that's exactly why in verse 17 to 18, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all because it is an eternal investment to pour into others. Everything we heard about this morning at TCM or what's going on in Romania, these are eternal investments. And lastly, I just want to go over this. What is the drink offering here that the Apostle Paul is speaking to? The drink offering is a term that the Philippians would have known well. Uh, Paul is actually using his own analogy here. Um, as ancient people would have done, they, they made sacrifices in those days. And at the very end of the sacrificial ceremony, there would be a drink offering that was given. And that was often wine that was poured on top of the offering or on top of the burning sacrifice. It was kind of like the, the, the final component that completed a sacrificial ceremony. And so Paul here is drawing an analogy to say that with a supernatural holy gladness, all of his service, all of his efforts, all of his labor, and ultimately even, his, even if his very own life was poured out for the sake of his beloved dear brothers and sisters, he would be glad. And likewise, they indeed should also be glad with him. And so Paul has a holy gladness and in the same way, we ought to be glad. We ought to have the same attitude when we pour ourselves into others. We can be glad, we can rejoice because it could mean someone's salvation or it could mean the discipleship, of the, the discipleship of others to be more and more like Christ. And so again, Paul used all of his time, all of his talent, all of his treasure. 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen, he says this. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent. And church, we ought to have the same attitude today. It's a holy gladness and joy in our sacrifice for others. Uh, now I want to wrap up today's message really with uh, two key applications. I think there's a lot of application points from this message, but simply put, firstly, if you haven't yet accepted the great gift of salvation, then today is the day. This gift is available to you. You are separated from God because of your sin, but thanks be to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in your place. All you need to do is believe and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is how you can be reconciled with a holy, perfect, and eternal God. And that's how you, you need to simply turn from your sin, and that is how you can have eternal life with him. Secondly, if you're a believer here today, then church, understand this gift of salvation, please. We need to live it out. That's really the big idea. Live our lives in accordance with this great gift that has been given to us. Whether it be holy reverence, holy witness, or holy gladness, understand the value of salvation. And we need to live our lives in light of that. Let's never forget what our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, did upon that cross. And let us not take salvation as trivial. Never forget the cost and the treasure this great inheritance that God has graciously given to you. And then lastly, I'll just add the sin. None of us will do this perfectly, but we can also rest. And praise be to God that his mercies are new each day, but ultimately that we don't do any of this on our own strength. As we heard, as we heard the Apostle Paul say, all of this is because of Christ in us, God working in and through us. And so be encouraged, church, that even on your worst days, it is Christ in you, and church, he is faithful to himself.
he will bring to completion what he has started in you. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father in heaven, Father, thank you for this great gift of salvation that you've given us. Father, what an encouragement it is to know that, Lord, it is not by our own efforts that we're reconciled to a holy God, but it is a free gift that you've given. And that, Lord, even now as we live our Christian lives, as we live in response to this great gift, it is you that works in us. What a miracle it is, what a mystery it is, that God of the universe would choose to use man for your glory. I pray that you would encourage those here today, for those that don't know you again, that this would be the day of salvation, and for those of us who do, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to live out this gift of salvation, and that ultimately we'd be able to rest knowing that it is your work in us, and that it is you in us who gets all of this completed for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.